Yeah, so my name is Carolee Van Scooten, and I'm part of the, the leadership team here. And uh, um, it's been a joy. You know, we talk about we talk about transition, and even though you know transition is a loaded word, there's a lot of things that go into it. But um, it's we recently reached the six month point um, of being the transition team, and when we started, the te- there were people on the team that didn't know each other, had never really had a, an actual conversation with one another. Um, and it's kind of you know amazing how God picked the people to be on that team. But looking now at the last couple of meetings that we've had, it's been amazing to see actually be a team, you know, to be people that love each other and um, work well together. And that in itself is kind of a work of God that is going on that maybe you guys don't see on the, you know, all the time as obviously. But that being said, um, we're talking about discipleship today. Last week, Gregory started us off on the topic of discipleship um, by giving us kind of a big picture perspective, like the bird's eye view from 50,000 feet, why it's important. And today we're going to go beneath the surface. Today we're going to talk about the foundation of discipleship and what it's all built on. Um, So in order to do that, let's take a look at the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, and it's a verse that that uh, people talk a lot about in churches. Uh, It's a kind of a foundational passage when we talk about discipleship. And so we're gonna start there this morning. In this passage, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When I first read through that verse, those verses again, I'm kind of struck by how task-oriented it sounds, right? If I stop and look at the verbs that Jesus uses, he says, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. There's a lot of doing involved in these verses. Um, But let's take a closer look, right? It says, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. What exactly did Jesus command us? There's a lot of things that Jesus taught his disciples, but John 15, 12, I think the verses will be up on the screen. John 15, 12 sums it up pretty clearly. In that verse, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So in the midst of all of the doing around discipleship, it all focuses in on the command to love. If we try to disciple other people without loving them, we're actually not fully obeying Jesus' command. We might think we're hitting the mark, but we're kind of still missing it. And so love really is the foundation of discipleship. This might seem really obvious because it's so simple, and I totally get that. Sometimes the simple things seem like they're just like, well, duh, like (laughs) it's nothing new. But the reality is, is that it's not as obvious as we might think. Right, and how do I know this? Guys, I've had experiences of love not being the foundation. And I think we all have. And I just wanna share one of those with you this morning. So I didn't grow up in the States, but I came here for college. And uh, in the midst of that, that meant that there was some culture shock involved. A lot of things that I needed to unpack and process for myself. And, And I spent a lot of time kind of trying to figure that out by myself. 
and eventually got to the point where I was like, well, maybe it would, maybe it would be a good idea to have someone else like help me kind of sort through this stuff, walk through this. Um, and I'd heard about a counseling center on campus because as a student, that's, that service is available um, free of charge. So I was like, well, I don't really have much to lose, even though I was kind of hesitant at first, right? I was kind of hesitant because I didn't, I didn't think that the counselor pe- people, counselors, would know where I was coming from. I didn't think that they would really understand what was going on, but I decided to give it a try. And so the day came where I was sitting in her office and started to share some of the things that I was thinking about. And I could see her wheels, the wheels in her head start to, to turn. Um, I could tell that she was um, trying to figure out where I was coming from. And, and I'm sure that this wasn't necessarily how she intended it, but I started to feel like a project. I started to feel like she was looking at my story through the lens of her textbook, trying to like you know, figure it out and fix the problem without really engaging my heart in the midst of it. And when people feel like projects, they usually start to shut down. And that started happening to me. I was in her office and I could just feel the walls go up. Um, And I left that day with a bad taste in my mouth that affected how I thought about and looked at counseling for a long time. I was probably about seven years ago or so, and so thankfully, um, by God's grace, my perception of counseling has changed a lot since then, um, you know, but, and also, I, um, just kind of as a side note, if you're a student here from Wheaton College or from, you know, from anywhere, I just, I, I don't want this, the point of me sharing that story is not to turn you off to counseling, right? There are great counselors out there, and if you need help walking through stuff, please reach out for help. The point of me sharing that story was just to share an honest dynamic that happens in real life. Like it happens, it can happen in pretty much any relationship, right? It's not just a counseling type of relationship where it's obviously someone else helping you. It can happen in, you know, we can, we can all, my guess is that we've all experienced that dynamic in some form, right? Either we've turned other people into a project in the midst of life or we felt like we've become someone else's project. They're trying to fix us. Sometimes that happens with parents, or that could, that could happen with us and our kids, or our spouse, our peers, possibly even spiritual leaders sometimes, right? Like this is not, this is not something that anyone's immune to. Sometimes that can even happen in the context of discipleship relationships. And, um, you know, and that's, that's really unfortunate, but I just feel the need to acknowledge that because in a room this size, we're all coming at the conversation of discipleship from a different background. Like we've all had different, or coming into this conversation with different experiences. Some of us probably have had amazing experiences with discipleship that have rocked our worlds and that have like brought us miles along the journey in following after Jesus. And that's awesome. And I pray that we all will have those experiences. Some of us, though, maybe haven't had any experiences with discipleship. Maybe we're talking about discipleship and you're like, you know, that's kind of like Greek to me. (laughs) Um, But there's also probably people in this room that have had some experiences with discipleship that have left, like, left a bad taste in their mouth for that word because it's been painful for one reason or another. And if that's the case, Honestly, it's probably the case because those relationships didn't have love as a foundation. Because they had cracks in their foundation in one way or another. 
So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some, a few of those common cracks that can appear in the foundation of discipleship, um, and, then, and then look at how Jesus did discipleship differently, so we can build a solid foundation really intentionally on love, because that doesn't just happen. <laughs> we don't just happen, you know, to like have a great relationship built on love. Um, it takes intentionality. So as I was thinking about this and praying about this, I felt like God kind of brought up three key kind of cracks that can appear. So it's not an exhaustive list. There can be other ones as well. Um, but we're just going to do three this morning. And as a heads up, they're all going to start with the letter D. And that wasn't, I, I'm a poet. I like poetry. So sometimes alliteration just happens naturally for me. It wasn't something I worked hard for. So <laughs> just as a disclaimer. Um, but so the first one, okay, is disengaged discipleship. Disengaged discipleship. All right, this happens when you have discipleship without real relationship. All right, sometimes um, maybe you've heard the phrase discipleship isn't friendship, right? We've, we have heard that phrase um, in like, you know, years ago here. And just to clarify, like there's, there's an element of truth to that, but that's not the, I don't really don't think that that's the full truth, right? We can't, we can't have, like, we can't have discipleship. We actually can't have discipleship without friendship. Friendship is the foundation for discipleship, right? We build discipleship on top of friendship because friendship is love, a genuine concern for someone else, right? So the thing is, what I think was the heart behind that originally was, is that discipleship isn't just friendship, right? You can have friendship without it pointing to Jesus, and then it's just friendship. It's not discipleship. But if it's pointing to Jesus, then you have friendship and discipleship, and you have both. If there isn't friendship involved, here's, here's, the, here's where it turns into a project, right? If, it, if there's no friendship, then, and the only time you're meeting with one another is to connect about how people are following Jesus, following Jesus starts to feel like a project. The other person and where they're at spiritually starts to feel like a project, and that's not good. The second one, so that was disengaged discipleship, right? The second one is domineering discipleship. This is where discipleship becomes controlling, right? Sometimes we genuinely love people so much and we can see what needs to happen in their life so clearly that we just want to do it for them. Or we want to change their circumstances or situation or even change them, right? It's, it's where the line between loving people and trying to change people can sometimes become fuzzy and murky. Um, and sometimes even like a little bit of spiritual superiority can kind of sneak in of like, I can see this, you don't, but I know that this is what's best for you. So just listen to me, you know, um, it, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't sound pretty when I put it into words like that, but it happens guys. And, um, and this is again, where the bottom line is that people become projects because the end result becomes more important than the people's heart. So that's the second one. We got disengaged discipleship, domineering discipleship, and we have dutiful discipleship, right? Discipleship, this is where um, it's not the other person that becomes a project. It's me turning myself into a project because I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to obey God's commands to build, make disciples out of a place of trying to earn God's love, right? We never try, we never do these things intentionally, right? Nobody ever lays a foundation and is like, oh, I'm going to build a crack right here. Right? The cracks just form. 
<laughs> we don't we don't we don't ever plan to end up in these places but if we're not careful they happen and so um if we're if we're not aware of our hearts it can, it can be easy to slide into this place of trying to earn brownie points with god for by obeying his command to invest in other people and make disciples and it's especially easy when you're around a lot of other people that value that so you can like look better to them if you're doing it you know it's just one of those messy things where we have to be honest with our hearts about um, the motivations in it and so in this case people become projects because the focus shifts off of the other person's heart and it shifts on to what i'm doing in the in the process and that's never it's never about me and what i'm doing so just to be clear with this i want to like give a caveat i don't see these things happening in our church right now like front and center whatever like i'm not saying this in order to address some like hidden issue that i'm not like going to talk to people directly about that's not what i that's not what i'm doing right now i'm just putting this out there because um people people need to hear this because people people may have had these experiences in the past that they need healing from to like process and work through recognize oh that's what was going on and that's a problem or you know we need to grow an awareness of where the where the fault lines can happen so that they don't so that we can avoid them and address them preemptively so i'm not addressing anything right now it's more like dealing with stuff in the past as well as like avoiding stuff for the future so how do we avoid these cracks? How do we as a church and as individuals carry discipleship as a core value and hold on to it without turning people into projects? Jesus is a great place to go, guys. <laughs> We're gonna talk about Jesus and how he built disciples, how he made disciples. So to fill you, we're gonna um, talk about a story. We're gonna read a story from John 21. And before, before I read it, um, I just want to give you some context for this story. This story happens after Easter, um, and this is after. So this is after Jesus died and rose again from the dead, and um, this is also after Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Peter. Sorry, Peter disowned Jesus three times just about a week before the story happens. So this is th- that. That's still fresh for Peter, um, and so we're going to read this story from John. 21. Um, and the verses should be on the screens um, next to me if you guys if you guys want to follow along with that. So it says, after Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, um, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and their two other disciples were together. So a bunch of friends hanging out. I'm going to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. And that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the other side, and you will catch them. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. 
The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals, and the fish were on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. That's an amazing, amazing picture of redemption, the last, the last bit. Normally when people refer to this passage, they focus on those last verses because it is an amazing picture of redemption. Right after Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, Jesus gives him the opportunity to restate his love three times, to bring complete redemption. And that, that part is like really powerful and really important, but the part in front of it, the story, the backstory to that is also really important. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time unpacking specific verses or highlighting specific things that, that, um, that I really feel God wants to highlight you know, before having that, before Jesus and Peter had that conversation. So what do we notice about Jesus and how he engaged the disciples in this story? In John 21, so verse four to five, let's go back there. It says, Jesus stood on the shore and called out to them. Friends, haven't you any fish? In doing this, Jesus, Jesus entered their world. He connected with them where they were at and partnered with them in what they were doing. It's important to catch this because Jesus was a carpenter by trade. He was not a fisherman. He probably felt like a fish out of water when it came to fishing. No pun intended. <laughs> I'm not a dad, so I can't say I have dad jokes. You know, it's just like one of those things. I appreciate puns. But anyways, he, he seriously though, he, he probably felt out of his element. He's the, he's the creator of the universe. He made all the fish in the first place. But he's a carpenter. And he goes and he talks to people, his disciples, about fish. I think about what this could look like in a present day scenario. Um, so my brother likes to play League of Legends, which is a video game. And if this story were happening in today's world, I could just imagine Jesus like plopping down on the couch next to my brother, being like, hey dude, are you winning? 
you know? And my brother, because he's pretty good at video games, would probably say yes. But in the story, like, the disciples say no. Like, no, we're sucking. Like, this is awful. We haven't caught any fish. Like, <laughs> why did you ask? Thank you, you know? Um, but here's the thing, like, you know, so in the like video game example, Jesus would have told my brother exactly what to do in order to win, like in two seconds. In two seconds, literally, he would have gone from being defeated to owning the game. Um, from monotony to like a mic drop moment, you know? This is pretty crazy because 153 might not sound like a lot of fish to us, but back in the, it says that like, that they were almost not able to haul in the net because it was so many. It's amazing to see Jesus step out of his, like he was a human too, right? Like to step out of his comfort zone to go and be with his disciples where they were at and partner with them in what they were doing. He got on their level, he entered their world and, and that was a big part of his discipleship. He didn't just say to his disciples, hey, come follow me where I'm, with what I'm doing, but he also went to them and partnered with what they were doing. So a little later in verse 10, um, is the next thing is Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Guys, this is a big deal. In reality, those were the fish that Jesus had just provided for them miraculously, right? They actually spent the whole night and caught nothing. And then Jesus tells them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Like a present day example for that could be like giving someone money to go buy food for a potluck that, you know, we're having in a couple weeks, but, but then thanking them, like you give the money and they go buy the food and then you thank them for their contribution. Instead of being like, thanks for bringing, you know, my guacamole or whatever. Like Jesus, here's the thing. It's not a one-way relationship. Jesus, even though Jesus is clearly the one that's in spiritual leadership, you know, clearly he just rose from the dead. He's awesome. He's providing fish miraculously. Um, but Jesus makes it reciprocal. He, he elevates what they have to bring to the table. He dignifies and empowers them by saying these were your fish that you caught. He could, Jesus could have totally lorded it over them. And he actually could because he actually is the Lord. But he doesn't, right? Like he brings, he says, he could have said, bring some of the fish that I just gave you. Right? But he doesn't. And that is, that's actually a really powerful picture of love. Right? I think sometimes when we talk about discipleship, we have this, one, this idea that one person is discipling the other person. And so one person is like the leader. And, and it's not a two-way street. Sometimes that breaks down. But really, Jesus, Jesus sets a different standard for us for discipleship because even though he's totally making disciples of his 12 disciples, he still like opens it up for it to be reciprocal and to receive from them. And that's, that's important for a relationship to work and for discipleship to be founded on love. So then follow that down a couple, of few, a couple more verses. In verse 15, um, verse 15, it, it starts off saying, when they had finished eating, then Jesus starts talking to, to Simon Peter. There's that little phrase, when they had finished eating. Right? The Bible is full of all these little phrases that are doorways. They're invitations for us to step into what actually was going on. 
When I saw that phrase, it makes me wonder what the breakfast conversation was like. Right? Jesus waited until they had finished eating to actually talk to Peter about what was going on. But, so like, did they eat in silence? Like, did they actually, did they talk about stuff? Like, if they talked about stuff, what did they talk about? You know, verse 14, just before that, says that this was the third time that they had seen Jesus after he rose from the dead. So maybe by this point, it was starting to settle in that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Because the first time they'd probably been like, wait, wait a second, I was probably dreaming. Is this real? But at this point, it's settling in. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, ultimately, we can't know what they talked about. But the point is, is that they had breakfast together before talking business. Jesus took the time to eat with them to engage in friendship and relationship with them before getting down to the nitty gritty and dealing with the issue that was going on. If Jesus had approached people like projects, he probably would have skipped all of that, literally like everything of that and just like, you know, waited until that they came back from a night of fishing defeated because they didn't catch anything and then talked to Peter. You know, once they finally got to shore But Jesus doesn't do it that way. He takes the time for a relationship. So verse 15 continues, you know, after after all of that, then Jesus says to Peter, he asks the same question three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus asks these questions to open up Peter's heart. Jesus isn't just into behavior modification, okay? He is interested in Peter's heart and he's interested in our hearts. This is not the domineering discipleship that's just end goal in mind. Let's like blaze a trail till we get there. So Jesus does this, you know, he he gets at the the issue of the heart um, in order to restore Peter. But at the same time, Jesus is actually also teaching Peter a really important lesson about discipleship. So we hear the refrain, do you love me? Yes, okay, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Care for my sheep. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, do you love me? Make disciples. Do you love me? Help my sheep grow in maturity. Right? Like, this is actually a clear echo of John 14, 15. This, this verse should be up as well. And earlier in John, right, the this, this story happens in John 21. Earlier in John, Jesus is teaching his disciples and says this verse. It says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And that echoes what Jesus is saying with Peter, right? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus is teaching Peter and us that obedience is an outflow of our love for God. If you love me, you'll obey. But the love starts first. Love is where it starts, right? We don't get love because we obey. We obey because we love. Yeah, good. I'm gonna say that again. We don't get love because we obey. Yeah. We obey because we love. Jesus has actually commanded us to make disciples, right? Like this is actually something that Jesus said that we should do. It's a command that we are to obey. But it means that our discipleship, as we follow Jesus, our own discipleship, and as we make disciples, 
both are an outflow of our love for God. And as we disciple others, as we make disciples of others, their obedience must be an outflow of their love. Typically when we turn people into projects, it's because we ignore the heart of what's going on in people's heart. But that's ultimately counterproductive because obedience for all of us begins in the heart. In one of his letters, Paul talks about someone who has an amazing gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. This person also has an amazing gift of faith that can move mountains. When I hear about that, that sounds freaking awesome. Like, I'm like, seriously, like, please let me be discipled by that person. Um, I want to learn everything. Like, I want to learn their awesome skills. Um, I want my faith to look like theirs. And we all would, right? But this is from 1 Corinthians 13, 2, which says that without love, all of that's nothing. It's worth nothing without love. It kind of like throws us for a loop if we actually let that sink in. Ultimately, you can be a discipleship guru, but if you don't have love, and if you miss the heart, it ain't worth squat. It's nothing. Yeah. Like, you know, it could be a piece of trash on the floor. Like, seriously, it's nothing. Let me share a story of what this has kind of looked like in my own life as I've kind of been figuring this out myself. So about like two or three years ago now, a family started coming to Antioch. And this family had a 10-year-old girl named Natalia. So some of you will know her, some of you won't. That's, that's cool. Um, but her, And her family moved out of town about a year ago, so that's why they're not here anymore. But um, at the time, she kind of just gravitated to me for no apparent reason aside from God wanting to connect us. Um, so she, she grew up um, kind of like with a rough home life. And so I just kind of knew that she probably needed some extra love. And so I was praying about it and sensed God leading me to start intentionally reaching out to her um, and meeting up with her. Kind of like as a mentor, sister, aunt, don't really know exactly what. <laughs> um, but so for about a year, year or two, every Wednesday night after work, I would drive over to her house, um, pick her up and go on some sort of adventure that usually involved Slurpees at 7-Eleven or going to the library because that's what you do when you're 10. Um, and so, um, yeah, we just spend time and hang out. And so um, going into this relationship, I had my idea of what discipleship looked like, right? I had, I had already been in pouring into college students, um, was being poured into by the college, the college pastor's wife at that time. Um, so I kind of had some, I had a grid for discipleship to go off of. Um, this was off of my grid in a lot of different ways. <laughs> um, but so I tried to bring what I learned about discipleship from those previous experiences into this new relationship. Um, and it didn't work so well. So for example, for a while I insisted that we talk through a Bible story or passage, um, but I, I found that it was consistently hard to connect it to her 10-year-old world. 
Um, then I tried buying like a devotional book for preteens that we would like read a chapter every time of and just go through it that way. And we would like, I would intentionally carve out space while we were sitting in Dunkin' Donuts to like, to read through a chapter. But somehow it felt forced and it felt like we weren't really getting anywhere. And so it's kind of in this place of like, okay, how long do I force it? Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to like make discipleship happen my way. And how much, like, where, where do I, how do I walk this line and this tension? And like, I was getting pretty discouraged because it wasn't working. <laughs> and so I started to wonder if it even counted as discipleship because I couldn't check my discipleship boxes, right? Like, <laughs> I couldn't like, like reading scripture is a discipleship box, you know, you check. Like, <laughs> praying, praying about like, you know, all the deep issues in your life, you know, as a formula is like part of what I thought about happens in discipleship. And she's 10 and she doesn't have like, self-awareness about all those things so I couldn't check that box you know growing in God in obvious ways I couldn't even check that box guys like I could I felt like I was just in her world you know like Jesus went fishing you know as a carpenter I was in her world but I couldn't check any boxes and so I was like I actually you know I I ended up deciding like okay I'm still going to be committed to investing in you in your life and in loving her but I, st- I actually stopped thinking about it as an official discipleship relationship. I stopped calling it discipleship because it didn't fit my discipleship, my preconceived ideas of what discipleship should look like. That was a really humbling process for me because, you know, I like discipleship being official and like, you know, figuring it out and like feeling good about what I was doing and knowing that it was making a difference and stuff like that. And like all of those things were kind of stripped away from me in that process. I remember driving home one night feeling actually, actually feeling like a total failure because I was investing a ton of time, um, you know, into this and I had no clue if it was actually making a difference or not. And I could see some growth or I could see, you know, there were little things that I could like, I could tell and pick up on that it was impacting her life or like changing things inside, but not really anything that I could like grab a hold of. And so I remember driving home and just praying and being honest with God about it. Um, And I felt like in my car as I was driving home, God redefined discipleship for me, specifically in in the context of this relationship. And he told me that it's about discipling her heart. It wasn't about teaching her to know stuff about God. It's about teaching her heart that she is safe and that she's loved. And for me, that was a game changer. It was a game changer because I was like, I can do that. I can, I can be a safe space for her. I can love her well. And God, only God knows that her heart didn't know that. Her heart didn't know that she was in a, she could be safe in relationship and be loved. You know, God knows the needs of our hearts. And we need him in the process of discipleship to open that up, to show us how we can partner with him to like teach people's hearts the reality of the truth of God's word. That's what discipleship is about, right? It's about connecting what we know in our heads and making it real in our hearts. So I learned in the midst of all of that, to set aside my agenda of what I thought discipleship should look like and to learn that it's about, for me, it's about loving people and letting God change them, letting God change their hearts and their lives the way that he wants to in the midst of it all. And 
when you step into someone else's world, it's really easy to feel like you're in over your head. Like you're not qualified, you have no idea how to like respond to all the situations that are thrown at you. But here's the thing, love, if if you can have all of the amazing spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13, but not have love and it be nothing, that means that if you have love and you don't have those things, you're still qualified. Love is what qualifies you for discipleship. And it, it's what qualified, it, it's what qualified me. I actually felt like I was saying that in my relationship with Natalia, because there were a lot of things where I felt like unqualified from middle school life, <laughs> you know, but Jesus is saying love is what qualifies you for this. So love is the foundation. Paul sums this up really well in his letter to the Philippians. So in Philippians 2, 3 to 5, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests or your own agendas about what discipleship should look like, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Guys, this verse raises the bar for us. It, cl- it clarifies our hearts in the process, and it can feel like a tall order, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Like if we're really honest with ourselves, that's kind of like, can, can we actually for real do that? No, mm. <laughs> let's just be real. So, but here's the thing, God's word is our standard. The fact that we can't live up to this by ourselves does not mean that we lower the standard. <clears throat> that this is our standard for everything and for discipleship. And God, by his spirit within us, will help us and empower us to live this out and love one another like Paul's writing about in Philippians. This is what he's calling us to. This is what he's equipping us for. In a few minutes, we're gonna move into a time of response and we'll actually have the iPod um, music on for that because Gregory's home with his sick family. Um, but one final point that, that I really feel like God wants um, me to touch on this morning is that not only do we not treat other people like projects in discipleship, but God doesn't treat us like projects yeah. in our own discipleship as we follow him. Right? These are things that like, if we put it out there in words, everyone would be like, well, of course not. Right? We know the right answers in our heads, but sometimes our hearts don't feel it. Sometimes it feels like we're a project, like God's treating us like a project, right? Like if we come to God and it feels like every time we come to him, God has a long to-do list or God's pointing out the next thing to do and to fix in ourselves, or we feel like we need to fix ourselves before we get to God, before we can, you know, and it's even, even like thinking like, oh, God's not going to like pour out and lavish his love on us until I like do that one thing or like, you know, it just, it just seeps in so quick and it's twisted. That is a twisted thing, right? Because he never, he never treated his disciples. Jesus never treated his disciples like projects and God never treats us like projects. He never has and he never will. And there's sometimes there's this like fear, like we can have this fear of like, oh, like, 
no, there's this preemptive fear of like that that's going to happen, and that and that causes us to pull back, right? And and I just felt like God wanted me to put words to that so that we can deal with it, like bring it into the light that that fear is a lie, right? That that is not that is not true. So um, if um, yeah, why don't we go ahead and um, put on some iPod worship, like a worship song, and um, and just take some time to let these words sink into our hearts. What is this? What does this mean for us right now? Um, if you have felt like, if you have felt like God's treated you, been treating you like a project, or if you felt like that, um, we're gonna have people up on the front um, on our prayer team that can pray with you through that. Um, or if there's anything else, either from this message or just this um, coming in from, you know, a long week. Thank <laughs> you.